Oh, okay. Now I'm in the stream. There we go. I don't even know if people could hear me. I'm new. I'm new to this whole stream yard thing. Uh, Matthew, you are muted currently. I don't know if you can hear me or not. Oh, um, all right. Awesome. Thank you. There we go. All right. <laughs> and now we are officially live and streaming. We should be up and live. Uh, everyone forgive us. This is our first time running one of these. I'm going to switch glasses because these ones have less of a glare on my screen. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess we can look inside the Facebook group and make sure that we're actually live. If you guys have, yeah, I don't actually know how to do this. So maybe, yeah, you could check for me. Yeah. Uh, and open a different tab and, uh, head over to the Facebook group. We'll go home and let's just see if we are live. Uh, yes, we are in fact live. I can see us streaming uh, good. on the page. So there we go. All righty. Well, welcome to the inaugural, uh, Thursday evening theology discussion. Uh, yes, our very first theology Thursday. Theology Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> Thirsty theology Thursdays. Hey. Yes. <laughs> As a reminder, Jesus's first miracle was probably making the best wine the world has ever seen for people who had uh, already been drinking probably for a day or so. So God yep. loves joviality. Don't drink to excess, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but as Paul says, have a little wine or something else for the sake of yep. your stomach. So, <laughs> and as I think it was Chesterton once said, wherever you find four Catholics, you're bound to find a fifth. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, what, what is on the agenda to be... for tonight? Yeah, go yes. ahead. Good question. Okay. So what are we going to be talking about tonight? Well, uh, I thought to start off with a more controversial topic, uh, which would be the various Marian doctrines. We could start off talking about those. I know you uh, have read into that subject a lot. And so we can talk about that if you'd like, or we could start off with something else, or we could take questions from the Facebook group. Uh, if anyone's watching right now, they can pose, you know, questions if they like. Um, so if you want, we can start talking about one of the uh, various Marian doctrines. I don't know which one you'd want to talk about first, but. Um, I'm happy to do whatever makes sense. I see Seth uh, and he sees people. So clearly we're live. <laughs> <laughs> so huzzah technology is on our side um so I, I i guess with the marian doctrines the very first thing i would say is and i've i've taught rcia for 11 years 12 years i don't even know uh oftentimes multiple sessions in a year so i've mm -hmm. i've gone through the the teaching oh you know 20 or 30 maybe 40 times in the last uh decade and a half or so and I don't know that I've ever encountered somebody who came to me and said, you know, I was on the fence, but the thing that won me over was the Marian doctrines. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, quite the opposite. The thing that most people say is, you know, oh, I, I, I think I get the Pope. You know, I, I think I understand the Eucharist. You know, I think I get all these things, but, but, but Mary, like, I don't know if yeah, I, I mean, can get on it, board with the Marian doctrines. So usually yeah, Mary even... Yeah, they may even see it as like maybe unnecessary. It's like, why do we why do we even need this? We have all the mm -hmm. most important stuff. Like we got Jesus, we got all the other stuff. But why is, you know, why are these Marian doctrines necessary and all that? So that's usually another perspective that you can find as well. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so usually Mary is kind of the last reason people come into Catholicism, not the first. Um, yeah. But I will say this. Um, a, this is something I often talk about in, in my classes. The, the Marian doctrines, uh, you do need to, as a Catholic, assent to the truth of these doctrines, but that doesn't 
oblige one as a Catholic to have a devotion to any particular saint, but even Mary. Sure. Um, so one can be a Catholic and theoretically never say a Hail Mary. Now, in practice, you're probably going to, you know, get get a rosary as a penance someday. Uh, or you're going to you can go to a funeral and they'll be saying a Hail Mary or, or something along those lines. So practically, yeah, you'll probably say a couple of Hail Marys. But so you need to be on board with the concept of the saints and intercession and who Mary is, et cetera, obviously. Um, but you don't have to have a rabid Marian devotion in order to be Catholic. Mm -hmm. Now, many Catholics uh, do have a, a very deep devotion to Mary, and many of them would even say that uh, she bears a lot of fruit in one's spiritual life properly ordered. Uh, she is not uh, a replacement for Christ by any means. She's not a replacement for Jesus. Uh, she is a creature. Uh, she needed a savior. All of those things are true uh, when we talk about Mary. But understanding Mary as a lens helps us to understand Christ. Uh, yeah. I think that's one of the big reasons to, to really understand and know and, and think about and contemplate uh, the various Marian doctrines. And in fact, what you'll find is throughout uh, the history of the church, whenever a Marian doctrine got defined, like uh, the Theotokos, uh, you know, Mary is the, the God bearer. Um, the, the thing that was really at con being contested there was less about Mary and more about Christ. Who yeah. is he? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? Um, you know, did, did Mary just bear a, a, a human nature, you know, uh, did the divine nature come in separately in some capacity? And so um, almost everything we know about Mary uh, and all of the um, all of the truths that we hold uh, as uh, dogmatically defined uh, doctrines uh, in the Catholic Church, they tell us about Mary, sure, but they tell us about Christ. And mm -hmm. that's the big reason um, why. So me personally, as I was saying, you don't have to have a deep Marian devotion. I don't have a deep Marian devotion uh, as a Catholic. It's not something that like draws out to me in a, in a super way. But I, I have a love for Marian theology. Uh, Marian mm -hmm. uh, theology is not the right word. Mariology is almost like devotion. Well, it is. I mean, that that is how my Marian devotion is is shown because I find it beautiful. I find it beautiful and fitting. It's it's like there's so much rhyming and poetry uh, in in the in the scriptures. There's there's so much, you know, as Mark Twain says, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it has a tendency to rhyme. Well, well God, the, the the divine architect and poet, uh, he he makes scripture rhyme all over the place. All this typology that points to to Jesus and everything else, but it also points to to other things. It points to Mary. I was actually just talking tonight. So here's here's one we'll talk about a little bit. I guess um, we can we can dig into this. Is Mary is the new Eve. Um, because I was talking in my class today about the creation and the fall, and we got to that famous passage in Genesis 3.15, which is called the Proto-Evangelium uh, by many of the early church fathers, because they saw this as pointing very, very clearly to Mary. And then the uh, God says to the serpent, I put enmity, uh, space or distance, uh, a, a great divide between you, the serpent. And we know who the serpent is from Revelation, the ancient serpent, the dragon, the devil called Satan, who deceived the whole world. And of course, he deceives the whole world in Adam because Adam, Adam is the man. Uh, so literally, he he deceives the whole world in Adam. But so God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. And the term seed is interesting, both in Hebrew and in Greek. Uh, it's a term uh, that has a lot of different meanings. Uh, it can mean just a seed. If you're a farmer, you go out and and, uh, you know, put seed in your field, obviously. Um, in English, uh, the, the words that we use uh, that come from, from Greek are sperm and semen, and they both mean seed. And so there is definitely a uh, sexual or generative uh, connotation 
to the idea of seed. But the funny thing is in, in, in ancient biology, um, it's the, it's not the woman that has the seed. It's the man that has the seed. The woman was always viewed as, I guess you say the fertile ground, um, where the seed would be planted and, and, and bear fruit. And in Genesis, we see it's the seed of the woman. And a lot of the early church fathers, and this is something that I kind of came to on my own and then found conf confirmation in, um, they said, well, the woman shouldn't have seed. This is, this is unique because this is actually talking about the virginal conception. Otherwise uh, it wouldn't necessarily say the seed of the woman. Now, I don't know if that's a hundred percent the case because you can see that the word seed just means offspring or just means children at times. Um, but I think there's a layer in there when you see hidden in Genesis three, this promise of the virginal birth, not just, you know, a birth, but the virginal birth, the seed of the woman. Um, and then it goes even further. He says, I'll put empty between you and the woman, between her seed and yours. He will cross your head while you will, will strike or bruise his heel. And, um, you know, when it comes to if, if there's a snake in the garden, if there's a especially a deadly snake, uh, the best way to get rid of it is just smash the head. Right. And if you're out yep. in the garden, you got nothing else with you. You use your foot and you step on it. But of course, uh, if you're stepping on its head and it rears up and it bites you, uh, you're you're going to have a bad time as they say. And so this is actually a promise uh, fulfilled in Christ uh, through Mary uh, of the woman and her seed. And it is her seed that crushes the head of the serpent, which is the Satan, uh, the devil. Um, but in the process he is struck. And if the serpent bites your heel, you're going to die. Right. And so literally in the process of destroying the devil, what happens to Jesus uh, on Calvary he dies. He is struck and he's struck a wound that looks like it's going to be uh, a mortal wound. And in, in, in one sense, it definitely is. But of course, he is the resurrection. And so that's not the end of the story. And so all of the early church fathers saw hidden in Genesis this this typology pointing towards obviously Christ, most specifically, most explicitly, but also to Mary, who is the woman. And it's interesting because at the very beginning of his uh, ministry uh, in, in, in John 2 at the wedding at Cana, um, they're at the they're at the wedding feast and they come to Mary because I think she was the main person invited and Jesus and his disciples just tagged along or whatever. And they say, we're, we're out of wine. Uh, or she, it becomes, it becomes apparent to her that they're out of wine. She goes to Jesus and she says, they're out of wine. And he addresses her, uh, you know, a woman, what is this between you and me? My time has not come. Now, it's definitely a strange way to address your mother. It is. It's not a strange way to address a woman in general, but it's not very commonly referenced, as far as I can tell, as a way to address one's mother. Uh, yep. There are definitely preferred ways of addressing one's mother, but he addresses her at the beginning of his ministry as woman. And of course, uh, like a good Jewish mother, she knows that he's going to obey, like a good Jewish son. Yep. And so she doesn't even address him. She just turns to the servants and says, Do whatever my son tells you to do, uh, which is, of course, the message Mary always has for us do whatever Jesus tells mm -hmm you to do which is really and the course, essence of marian devotion absolutely 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 and then of course at the end um of his ministry as well as he's dying on the cross one of his dying breaths he gives the woman over to the care of the beloved disciple and of course mm. those those words are um full of all sorts of of, of meaning beyond the mere literal hey john sure. take mary into your house he gives the woman he says woman behold your son son behold your mother and from that time the beloved disciple took her into his home uh and so the the care of the of the woman is given over to the beloved disciple which i'm a firm believer personally it's not John being braggadocious and saying, hey, you know, Jesus loved me the most, you know, but rather it's actually it's an act of humility where he's removing himself at times from the text and allowing the the reader of his gospel to insert themselves in there as as the beloved disciple or as a beloved disciple. Uh, so he's not 
He's not just saying, hey, you know, Jesus loved me the most, which, you know, could be a true statement. Uh, you know, he could have been, you know, because he was young and 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 sure. whatnot. He was he had a lot of heart. He may have been Jesus's favorite, even if he gives all his authority to Peter. Nevertheless, he may have had a, a soft spot for for John. Uh, but sure. I think that more likely what John is doing is is he is bowing out a little bit um, and, from his own gospel and, and allowing the reader mm -hmm. uh, to, to yeah, see. That's, I mean, that's why he frames it with uh, the disciple. Yeah, the, the disciple who Jesus loved or the, the beloved yep. disciple, uh, even though he is the one that was given uh, the, mm -hmm. the care of Mary. And then, of course, he sees in his apocalyptic vision at the end of his life uh, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 12, he sees the woman again uh, mm -hmm. and he sees the woman crowned with 12 stars, with the sun, and the moon and everything else. Um, and she wails aloud and gives birth to a child. And that child rules all nations with an iron mm -hmm. rod. We then see the dragon is there, the ancient servant who deceives the whole world. And also St. Michael who chucks him down to earth and everything else. And there's a couple of other interesting things there. So we see the woman again, the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman. She is a part of the prophecy of scripture, the woman, mm -hmm. and she bears this child. Now, some people will say, well, well, this is all symbolic. That woman is, is Israel or even that woman is the church. And on the one hand, absolutely. Uh, scripture can have multiple meanings, especially, uh, uh, you know, um, prophetic literature like like the, the book of Revelation. In fact, it's somewhere in Revelation, I think it's 17. I read about the 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 beast has seven horns and the seven horns are seven kings yeah. and also seven hills. So John even tells you sometimes there's multiple meanings, uh, multiple layers to the the fantastic images that, that definitely. Yeah, that's something that I've heard. Um, uh, I think it was Patrick Madrid who said that a lot of these particular verses are very multifaceted. To the point mm -hmm. where you can understand them in different ways and all of those perspectives are correct there's no you yeah. know there's no way to really say that well it, it can only be uh, understood in one way but not that way you know it could be both ways that could be correct yeah well i think even augustine pointed that out he, he said in his yeah. early life he didn't take the scriptures seriously because he thought they didn't have much to say and then in his in his old life <laughs> he yeah. realized that there was so much in the scriptures uh to be mined so much wisdom there um but so we see in, in revelation we see the woman again uh and clearly uh, in that passage, the the child is Jesus. He's he's it's a one to one correspondence. The child is Jesus. Yeah. Uh, the dragon is Satan. Uh, Michael the archangel is there, and he's Michael the archangel. And so, if three of the four characters, three of the four players in this particular scene, this particular image, uh, are individuals, that tells you something about the fourth character, or the fourth player. This woman, she is at least particularly. Uh, an individual as well. And of course, the only individual that would square up with would be Mary, who's already been identified in John's writing specifically as the woman uh, repeatedly. And then, of course, we see at the very end of that same chapter, um, uh, it's verse 17, I think it is, uh, we're told that the children or the seed of the woman are the ones that follow Jesus Christ and, and give testimony mm -hmm. to him. So literally Mary stands in as this archetype of the church, right? She's the first Christian. She accepts yep. Jesus not only into her heart, but into her very womb, right? Mm. Um, and, and accepts him more fully than anybody else has ever accepted. Uh, Jesus says of John the Baptist, no man holier than he has ever lived. No man born of woman uh, is holier mm. than, than John the Baptist. John the Baptist says of Jesus, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Uh, and yet, and one of my favorite images of Mary, it's very common in Eastern Orthodox icons, is this picture of Mary holding the, the, the child Jesus. And one of his sandals is hanging off of his his yeah. foot and it's a symbol that shows you you know for as holy as john was no man holier ever lived mary tied jesus's sandals she she wiped his holy behind i mean jesus grew in wisdom and stature he had to learn all of those things and mary was there the whole time the woman to whom god entrusted uh his own son uh mm -hmm. jesus christ the second person of the trinity to, to be his mother and there's something just absolutely 
uh, enthralling about that. And of course, all the early church fathers, uh, you know, they didn't all have great Marian devotions, but they saw the typology. They saw yes. Mary as the new Eve. They saw Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant. Um, they they saw all of these things and it just made sense to them. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, even even the early the 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 reformers uh, up through the reformers and even up to like the 1600s, um, very very few of the Marian doctrines that we as Catholics hold were doubted by any serious Christian. Absolutely, uh, it's really only been in the last couple hundred years that things like the Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean that one was a little more touch and go because uh, certain people didn't fully understand what they thought. I mean Thomas Aquinas said maybe it yeah. wasn't at conception but at the quickening. You know. Because that was that was based more on a misunderstanding of physiology mm -hmm. than anything else. But you know, the virginal birth, uh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, I don't know of any reformer, uh, the early reformers, who found any reason to doubt that. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of things about Mary that are actually far more common to all mm -hmm. Christians, or at least they were until uh, a very modern strain of evangelicalism came along that saw Mary as a distraction, I think. And so mm -hmm. started to prune off anything that looked like a distraction. And I think that comes down to, and I'm sorry, I'm just monologuing at this point. I think it comes down to a misunderstanding of how glory is given, right? I mean, as a, mm -hmm. this may not be fair entirely. You can't lump Protestants into one group, obviously. But I think the general Protestant understanding is glory is like a pie. Um, and so you have slices of that pie and that whole pie belongs to Jesus. So if you give any of that pie to anybody else, but Jesus you're taking, away, yeah. you're taking away what belongs yeah. to him. Whereas for a Catholic, we, we view Mary as a work of art. And if mm -hmm. I'm standing in front of Leonardo, uh, da Vinci, if I'm standing in front of Michelangelo and I look up at the, the Sistine Chapel and I say, wow, that is amazing. Like, is he going to be upset with me to that person as opposed to taking it away? Say again. I said that's actually uh, adding glory to that person as opposed to taking it away. When you acknowledge the beauty of their art and the perfection of it, you begin to realize, wow, this artist is really amazing, right? It exactly. doesn't take away from the artist. It actually adds to it. Exactly. And you can actually learn something about the artist by learning about the art. So, for instance, with the Michelangelo Sistine Chapel, there's a whole bunch of different stories about this. One of my favorites, though, is, is one of the Cardinals came in and he had painted all these people on the, the wall and they're all naked. And the Cardinals like, oh, you, you can't do this. You can't have naked people in the church. You got to paint them, you know, cover them over. You know, this is this is improper. And Michelangelo refused and he took it to the Pope. And um, or, so he left and came back the next day. And, and, and one of the scenes, if you look at it in the bottom right corner, is a guy in hell and he's like wrapped up by a serpent and the serpent's biting him right on the, oh, the, the private before, parts. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was he was just floored. He took it to the Pope and he's like, you, you got to do something about this. And the story goes anyway uh, that the the cardinal goes to the Pope and says, Michelangelo, he's he's drawn me in hell and he's drawn me with the serpent and he's biting me in the most inappropriate way. And the Pope says, well, if he'd have drawn you in purgatory, I might have been able to do something about it. But in hell, there's nothing <laughs> I can do. <laughs> you know, but it lets you know something about the irascible nature of Michelangelo. I mean, he yeah. he was uh, he was an interesting fellow. Um, and so you can learn about the artist by learning about the art in, in yep. a real way. And it's the same way with God. Uh, you can learn about him and his plan, and you can see even more of the interconnectedness that you're missing mm -hmm. if you don't understand the Marian theology um, by understanding who Mary is and what role she played in salvation. Obviously not confusing her in any way or conflating her with God, um, mm -hmm. which no Christian has, no serious Christian has ever done. Um, mm -hmm. And and I'll say one other thing, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, this is kind of a side point. Uh, there are definitely a number of our Protestant brothers and sisters who who honestly think that we worship Mary. And and if you mm -hmm. honestly think we do, understand that you're mistaken. But I understand the reason that you come at us and say you got to stop doing this, right? Because if mm -hmm. I am worshiping someone that's not God, yeah, 
stop me, right? Please do. Yes. But you're actually shooting yourself in the foot in an interesting way uh, with a discussion you can have with our Muslim uh cousins <laughs> they, they they seek to worship the one true god the god of abraham right you got to understand where they're coming from they're seeking to worship the one true god and one of the arguments uh, in the quran is found in uh, surah 5 uh, 116 and i think he actually knew um there he did he, he had never according to modern scholars muhammad had never actually come into contact with christians but he may have come in contact with a handful of heretical sects uh, including one called the the colliridism Kali, i cannot pronounce this word colliridism yes thank you that's the one and uh so uh surah 116 uh, 5 116 says something along the lines of you know Mary, why do they take you as a goddess? Who told you that there were three gods, the father, the the son, and the mother? So there's a misunderstanding of Muhammad, uh, who who understands the Trinity is something Christians believe in, but he thinks, well, he doesn't understand or have a concept of the Holy Spirit. So he's like, well, it must be the father, the son, and the mother. That would make sense mm. from a purely naturalistic perspective. Um, but if it's the case, so, so if a Muslim is going to make the claim that Muhammad received divine inspiration, and if in fact you're receiving divine inspiration, um, then that divine inspiration better be right. You know, God yeah. shouldn't make a fundamental mistake about something so egregious as, uh, you know, what the Christians believe. And so uh, if you're if you're going to go around and say that Catholics are worshiping Mary and they've been worshiping Mary since Constantine or, you know, whatever claim you want to make, you're actually giving credence and validity to this Muslim claim that has no real basis. Um, but you're 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 adding you're adding fuel to a fire that shouldn't even be smoldering in a sense. Yeah. And if you just get past that and understand that, no. Christians don't worship Mary, then you actually have a really interesting, simple argument that's a defeater to the Quran. And I think that's yeah. a very important thing because our Muslim brothers, they, they're sincere in their faith. They want to worship the one true God and helping them to understand the mistakes that they're making and the mistakes that are very clear and apparent in the Quran uh, by showing them, hey, it says that we worship Mary as, as a goddess and we don't. Uh, that's one of the great ways that you can kind of help them to see uh, that there are errors in the Quran that prove that it couldn't have been given by God. But mm. again, you can shoot yourself in the foot by just saying, oh, Catholics worship Mary, Catholics worship Mary. We don't worship Mary. And the simple proof is I, I am adamantly clear. I am not worshiping Mary. I am not seeking to worship Mary. I don't want to worship Mary. I will never intend to worship Mary. You cannot accidentally worship something that you are utterly clear is not God and you don't intend to worship. You just can't. That's not how worship works. So anyway, I'm going to, I'll step off my soapbox now. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I actually wanted to add on a little bit to what you said by saying um, it's important for us to define our terms, uh, especially when we use terms like worship and all of that. Um, it's easy to accuse somebody of worship, but unless you have a definition for what worship is, it's kind of like an empty claim. So um, I heard Dr. David Anders talk about this recently on Call to Communion. Um, he said the primary act of uh, worship is sacrifice. So really what you have to ask is how many sacrifices do we offer to Mary on a daily basis, right? See that the mass is the central act of worship for the Catholic Church. And so during the mass, we don't offer the sacrifice to Mary, we offer it to God. Right. And so that would be the primary example. If you really wanted to accuse Catholics of worshiping of worshiping Mary, you would have to show that during the mass, the primary act of worship that we use to worship God, um, you'd have to show that we somehow use it to worship Mary. Right. And we right. don't. And every single time that there has been some kind of Marian idolatry in the past, um, the church has condemned it, Yeah, which is a, a heresy that we brought up earlier. I think it's called Coloridianism. Yes. And that, I can never pronounce that word. Going, yeah. 
Yeah, there was even staring at it. I can't pronounce it, but that's exactly the right one. Yes, I, I, I've heard uh, Dr. David Nader's talk about that in the past, so I just try to remember it. It's a really cool sounding word. I like it. But yeah, so yeah, um, every single time there's been any any kind of like Marian devotion, or, or I'm sorry, a Marian like seeming. Um, I'm sorry. Let me get my thoughts. Every single time there's been some kind of Marian idolatry in the past, the church has always uh, always condemned it every single time because I know that there is this cult. That actually was, um, if I remember correctly, Dr. David Andrews said this, that there is this cult that were, actually was actively offering a, a sacrifice that, to Mary. That was the uh, Chloridian-ism. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. <laughs> that's what they were so, doing, yeah. and that's why it was problem. In fact, the, the word Chloridian, the root of that is bread. So it's like the yeah. offering of the, the bread or something like that. So yeah, they were offering yeah. the, the mass to Mary, and that was problematic in churches. No, and I will say this, the, the thing about... Um, Think about the way the church works in general. Uh, it, the church doesn't usually say, hey, this is the stuff that you have to do and have to believe. The church is actually in the job of putting putting guidelines on things, putting guardrails yeah. on things and saying, don't go beyond this. And so yeah. um, honestly, the the we would the, the word you'll hear sometimes, and I'm going to use it just because I want people to, to know this is a word and it doesn't, it's not as scary as it sounds. The word is cult of the saints. Uh, and a cult, yeah. cult versus occult. Occult, occult means hidden. So cult just means the the veneration or the the public knowledge of this thing right so the cult of the saints is something that arose organically out of the church we see it inscribed on early first century tombs we see it in the writings of early church fathers um asking for the the saints and the deceased to to pray for them and and and, and whatnot and so uh what the church does is the church anytime she sees something that could be problematic she'll put guardrails on this okay you can do this, but don't go this far. You can do this, but don't go this far. And, and honestly, a lot of Marian devotion, a lot of Marian doctrine uh, started at least initially as, as the church saying, okay, you can go this far, but no farther. You can go this far, but no farther, because we don't want you to border into, into heresy. Now, as uh, certain things were questioned uh, and certain truths were at risk of being lost, um, the church through the charism that she's given uh, through the keys uh, that Jesus gives to, to bind and to loose on uh, the authority that he gives to the apostles and their successors, the church will step in and say, we can't lose this truth because in losing this truth, we lose something about God. And so the church will, will make a, a solemn definition or a dogmatic proclamation, but dogma goes all the way back to acts uh, 15 and 16 at the council of Jerusalem. They make a binding decision in council, not just the apostles, but the apostles meet with all of the, the, the elders, the presbyters, the priests. Yep. Um, and then, Paul in, in Acts 16 goes around and distributes the decree, the dogma, uh, that's that's the Greek term there, to, to all the other churches and the church's assent that uh, the Holy Spirit has spoken. It seemed good to the apostles and good to the Holy Spirit and good to the to the elders who were there. Um, and they, they disseminate the dogma. And so that's just how the church works. And that's how the church worked in the first century, second century, fourth mm -hmm. century, 12th century and 21st century. So we're not we're not pulling things out of a hat, even though it seems like that because you've never been taught these things. These are things mm -hmm. the church has guarded, um, pretty much for two thousand years. Uh, and a lot of on. times, uh, these guardrails can be seen as restrictive. Uh, I've heard things uh, like I've heard people say things like, "Well, the church is trying to hide a particular kind of truth from you. They don't want you to interpret the Bible for yourself because of these guardrails. You know, obviously, they don't want you reading it for yourself." When a lot of people especially Protestants have the same kind of idea. They say that, well, you can't interpret scripture to say that Jesus isn't God, right? You can say, yeah. you can interpret this, that, and everything else, but you can't interpret it to say, well, Jesus was only half God or something like that, or he was That's only right. you know, something like that. So um, guardrails are necessary, whether you're Catholic or Protestant. So I've yeah. heard that claim before is that, you know, guardrails are just a way of hiding the truth or something like that. Anyway, um, I was going to say something else. I forgot what I was going to say, but you can, uh, Continue if you want.
Um, <laughs> I don't really know what else to say. I mean, that was that was one little soapbox tangent. I mean, we could we could pull out other things. We could we could read early church father quotes. We oh, could, yes. You know... uh, also, I wanted to bring out the point that uh, isn't it interesting how um, in Acts fifteen, Peter was the one to end the dogmatic dispute. Oh yeah, yeah. And there is James's territory. It's like all right, after I say this, it ends. Yeah. And it ended after that. It ended. Yeah. Like the entire thing of well, do we need to be circumcised? No, you don't. All right, yeah. that's it. <laughs> We're done. And, it, <laughs> and 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 also bear in mind that at that council, they didn't consult scripture because if you would have consulted scripture at the time, it would have been just the Old Testament. And the Old Testament's pretty clear. If if you don't get cut off, you get cut off. Like that's yeah. that was what the Old Testament said. And they didn't have New Testament scriptures. They didn't have uh, acts recording yeah. uh, the Council of Jerusalem. They made a proclamation. That's how the church functioned. Uh, yeah. And it was a binding authority. It was a binding decision that the church followed. Yeah. And so uh, what are the other kinds of questions that you receive most often, whether it's online or in person in RCI, for example? Has there any, ever been a question that someone's asked you that's really Major, I just, you know, stop and think for a while. Um, I may mean, get good questions all the time. Uh, a lot of them follow the same kind of tangents. Um, I had an interesting one today because we were talking about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And like, why why were the why were the trees in the middle of the garden? Like, why, why would you put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the middle of the oh, garden? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're talking about how Genesis uses symbolic language, but it's, it's relating a real event. Um, it doesn't mean everything in Genesis happened literally exactly the way it's spelled out. Um, because obviously this is itself oral tradition protected by the Holy Spirit and written down by Moses or whoever he's dictating to, et cetera. It's, you know, the, the books of Moses. Um, you know, but there's a lot of symbolism there. There's so much symbolism in the first couple chapters of, of Genesis. Mm. Um, and so it's it's very, very clear. It, we don't deny the truth of Genesis. Uh, as Catholics, you can't deny the truth mm. of Genesis. But you can understand it in a number of ways that are uh, not problematic. Um, and, and, sure. and even Genesis itself kind of hints you into this, right? Because in Genesis 1, you have this interesting order creation and it starts with God creates light and then he separates the light from the dark. And then day two, he separates the waters from the sky and then day three, it's the land and then the plants. So you have this, like this second beat of creation is like a double beat. You have land and the plants. And then on the, the, the fourth day, uh, he makes the things that rule over the light and the dark, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Uh, sure. On the fifth day, he makes the birds of the air and the, and the fish of the sea that rule over the sky and the waters that he created. Uh, on the sixth day, he creates the animals that crawl on the earth. And then again, a, a second half beat, he creates man as a special creation. And of course he creates him very uniquely. But then in Genesis two, it says before there was any field shrub or any, any green plant on the earth, uh, because God hadn't sent water over the earth. He creates the man out of the clay and then he makes a garden and he puts the man in the garden and then he creates mm -hmm. the animals and he brings the animals to the man. So you have two different creation accounts. Most people don't even catch this. Um, and they cannot both be literally true in the exact same sense. Yep. Um, and that, that lets you know that Genesis is not trying to be hundred percent purely literal history at which point you know it, it opens up a lot of interesting possibilities um, mm -hmm. for reading and interpreting scripture in a way that is not it's not problematic you know as catholics we do read and we do interpret scripture uh mm -hmm. there's actually very very few passages in scripture that the church has a, a, a defined teaching about and even then it's not an exhaustive like this is the only possible meaning of this passage yeah. so much as it is a um 
you know, don't go beyond these guardrails as we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, so I thought it was a really interesting question. And she's like, well, why, why are they in the middle? I'm like, well, I mean, this is a central choice to primordial man. You know, yeah. Adam just means the man, all of humanity is summed up, summed up in this one man who is created without original sin. Um, and he chooses, you know, self, he chooses pride. He chooses, uh, you know, to, to, to set his own terms and, and put himself over and against his maker. And, and from there, all of humanity is shattered, right? We instantly see as soon as they bite, you know, the Genesis seven uh, or sorry, Genesis two ends with the line, they were naked, but they felt no shame. Seven mm -hmm. verses later, uh, they've eaten the fruit and they're, they realize they're naked and they cover themselves because they feel ashamed. And you know, that shame isn't just, Oh, look, naughty bits, right? Uh, yep. that, that shame is realizing that the other person can use you, that, yep. that they may not have your best interests at heart. And so instantly humanity is shattered. There's this instant mm -hmm. distrust between the only two people that even exist uh, yep. as far as the, the account goes. And then, of course, God comes into the picture and they hide from God. So there's this instant brokenness in, in man's relationship with God. And then, you know, God says, cursed, or, cursed is the ground because... Uh, because of what you've done, you know, thorns and thistles will yield you and by the sweat of your brow will you eat uh, the, 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 the plants of the field. Right. And so now all of a sudden, even, even the world itself is damaged because of original sin. So when we hear that there'll be a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, um, you know, a new earth created, it'll be something much more akin to, to this paradisical setup. And even here's something else I noticed a long time ago, but I think it's fascinating um, in the garden, they eat fruit and that's it. And what is fruit? I mean, fruit hangs from the tree. It's ready to eat takes very little to no preparation usually it's sweet it's delicious we like fruit and it's only after the fall that man eats his vegetables so so broccoli yeah. and and spinach is a result of original sin <laughs> and then it's not until the flood that god yeah. gives sanction to the eating of meat as well so there's actually this really interesting three-part dietary issue and i don't know what to make of that a hundred percent um but i just find it fascinating that's that that that's even in there right mm. um and of course later on you get the levitical codes and everything else and that's something else is interesting um you know the the levitical mm. codes come in and so you can't you know, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk so you, you don't mix milk and meat which is why they they, they don't eat cheeseburgers to this day the, the jewish people oh. who, who, who keep kosher cool. um but when when abraham is visited by this weird incarnate trinity there's these three men who come as one and who speak as the lord but they're three distinct men and they speak <laughs> for the lord and sometimes abraham calls him lord and whatnot it's a really weird passage um what does he do but he he prepares a meal for them and he he slaughters a goat and he cooks it with with milk like he literally prepares a non-kosher meal for god and that's one of the things that lets you know that the kosher laws are not objective issues so much as they were uh subjective they were there to help the jewish people know that they were people set apart uh distinct mm -hmm. in the way that they ate the way that they dressed their mannerisms and everything else um mm -hmm. this, you know the more you dig into it the more you find so uh, as, as a Catholic, I'm in love with scripture. Uh, I'll say that to my, my Protestant brothers and sisters, I find it absolutely fascinating and mm. there's always just so much you can mine from it, but yeah, definitely. That's another thing I want to touch on is the fact that you can interpret it in so many ways and still not be an error. You know, that's the cool thing about reading the Bible is that you can have different interpretations and Catholics aren't necessarily against, you know, having your own interpretation, so to speak. That's right. Because there are so many different ways to interpret scripture that are nonetheless you know they're, they're correct you know you can still have a correct understanding and uh, uh something else i wanted to touch on was the fact that nothing uh jesus ever says or does is by accident so mm -hmm. you can take literally almost everything that he says and get something from it you know he's always many times throughout the bible is he's comparing to the old testament and uh, we can uh, see this actually in of course matthew six, uh, matthew 16 and uh as we've talked about before the connection or the 
seemingly, you know, the, a current connection between uh, that and Isaiah 22. Mm -hmm. um, but also, before, before I wanted, before we get into that, I wanted to touch on the uh, topic of Mary again, and I wanted to recommend a book called uh, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. It's by uh, Brant Petrie, and it goes yeah. in, into detail about the New Eve stuff and everything else that we've been talking about. So if you really want to learn more about it, then I would recommend the book um, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of Mary. I've got uh, a copy sitting at like eight feet right over there, but I'm plugged in. Oh, so you like... know the cool thing? Okay, so <laughs> I actually got an autographed copy. My oh, nice. copy, my yeah, my copy is actually uh, signed by Brent Petrie. So yeah, <laughs> okay. So um, so did you want to talk about maybe some of the connections between the New and the Old Testament? Like for example, Matthew sixteen, Isaiah twenty two, the seeming connection between the two of those. Um, I mean, that's like a totally different topic, but I'm happy to at least touch on that right now. That's probably, I mean, that's definitely a topic for another day uh, when we have, or probably, we can, you know, we can maybe talk about that on it. the next live stream if you want to. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to at least touch on it. I think it's, it's utterly apparent. I love that passage from Isaiah yeah. when you see, you know, what was the king's job? The king's job was to be off fighting for the advancement of his people, and mm -hmm. that was normally what the king did, uh, either to protect them or to grow the kingdom. And, uh, you know, David got in trouble the one time he wasn't doing that. His, his army was off fighting. What was he doing? He was, you know, milling about on the, the rooftops. And he looks down and sees a, sees a pretty lady and says, you know, mm -hmm. hubba hubba, I want some of that. And, you know, he lays with her, gets her pregnant, realizes that she's the wife of one of his generals. And so mm -hmm. he basically tries to trick Uriah into coming home and, and, and thinking he got her knocked up. Uh, but that doesn't work out. And so he winds up, you know, David, a man after God's own heart, winds up basically committing murder of one of his trusted uh, generals, which is just a weird picture. But it's all because he wasn't off fighting for the advancement of his kingdom. Well, when the king was away, of course, uh, you had to the king, the kingdom had to run. And so the king would very clearly and this is something and this is just common sense. You don't even have to look in the Bible for this. The kingdom would have uh, ministers, every every government, every government. Mm -hmm that exists is an oligarchy of some kind uh, or an aristocracy of some kind. Uh, you know, the, the president has his cabinet, the king has his ministers. And so the, the, the Davidic king had his ministers and he had so many ministers um, that he would give one of them a special authority amongst the ministers, elevating him above the rest of the ministers. And that was symbolized by the key. Uh, and Isaiah very conveniently, because the Holy spirit wanted us to know this records a defrocking ceremony of a guy named Eliakim um, or rather uh, Hilkiah, and uh, he's kicked out and another man, Eliakim, is given uh, the authority. And he tells us this authority is symbolized by the key to the kingdom, the key of David. Um, and it has very unique properties. Um, the guy who holds this key is a father to all the people, um, to, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And so, of course, we, we call the, the bearer of the key to this day, the Holy Father. Um, he is a peg in a sure spot. He's a sign of stability. And, and that's one of the reasons um, in the West we've had the stability that we've had as our yeah. Orthodox brothers have kind of seen stability ebb and flow over their years as, you know, major seas like like Constantinople fell to the, to the Turks. Um, and there's a couple of things as well, but of course the authority of the key is whatever you open, no one will shut. Whatever you shut, no one will open. Whatever you bind, mm -hmm. no one will loose. No, whatever you loose, no one will, will, will bind. And so it's an authority. It's a binding and loosing authority. And mm -hmm. Jesus uses that same language about the scribes and the Pharisees, when he, uh, the Pharisees in particular, because they sit on the Moses's, on Moses's seat. He says in Matthew 23, uh, you know, 
the the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, they they sit in Moses' seat, so do what they do, but or do what they say, but don't do what they do, for they right. bind heavy burdens and they won't lift a finger. So he's actually explicitly speaking about this binding and loosing authority. But of course, he's mm-hmm. already setting into place the thing that's going to take over. He's he's preparing the new wineskins to receive the new wine because he sees mm-hmm. the old wineskins aren't going to work. And so he calls in Matthew 10, first Peter, as Matthew calls mm-hmm. him. Uh, and then the other apostles as well. And then in Matthew 16, he gives Peter explicitly the keys to the kingdom. He gives a similar authority to the others two chapters later in Matthew 18, the binding and loosing, uh, as the other ministers in the kingdom would have had. But Peter alone gets the key because only one person could hold the key. And that key carries with it a lot of authority, binding and loosing authority. Only it's bigger because it's two keys. It's not just earth. It's it's heaven and earth. And whatever he binds, no one will shut. Whatever he shuts, no one will bind. Because whatever he binds on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever he looses on earth is already loosed in heaven. It's already ratified in heaven, right? And that's that's one of the reasons we trust in the infallibility both of the Pope and of the church working in council because we know mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit. Catholics believe in miracles, and we believe that the church operating today is a miraculous thing. It is the yes. single longest lasting human institution that is still in existence, and it encompasses what a fifth of the world, give or take, depending on how you want to do the math. Mm-hmm. Um, a ton of people, and any any small quorum of men built around a falsity crumbles in a generation uh, or two. They, they don't last long-term. Uh, yeah. But this thing has outlasted the, the Roman Empire. It's outlasted yeah. persecutions. It's outlasted everything. And it's still in existence to this day and functioning and encompasses, you know, again, a sixth of the world or whatever. Um, and that's, that's, prophetic that's literally jesus saying this is what i'm going to do it's not going to fail it's going to be here you're going to see it and it's still there to this day we see early early church fathers referencing this right we know that peter made it to rome we know that he was martyred in rome we know that ignatius says that uh he he doesn't mention because he's on his way to rome to be martyred he doesn't mention the bishops in rome uh, as the only one of his letters that doesn't mention the bishops all the other letters mention the the local bishops but he doesn't mention the bishops there because he doesn't want to call them out and get them in trouble with the romans Because he's on his way to be fed to the lions, um, but he he calls the the Roman uh, church the church that holds the presidency. Um, yeah. I think uh, Irenaeus uses a similar term as well, and he says because of its because of its uh, noble establishment by Peter and Paul uh, with mm-hmm. this church, all of the churches must agree. So you find early church fathers, you know, witnessing and referencing this, and we don't even know what we don't know, right? We don't know what we've lost. We don't know how many early church documents and letters and epistles have been lost because they weren't copied or they weren't preserved. You know, it was hard enough to preserve the the letters. We we don't have Paul's letters to the Laodosians, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are probably uh, letters in scripture that should be there that aren't there because they simply perished. And mm-hmm. the thing is, that's okay because we are not a sola scriptura people. We never were. We never could have been. It was never the plan. We are a people of the church. Paul lays out in Second Timothy two two uh, the 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 orderly procession of the church. He says. You know, uh, what you've heard from me in public before other men and trust to other men who can entrust it to other men. So on. he's laying out this this transmission of authority. And that's what the early church fathers all point back to. And they say, this is exactly how the this is how you can know a heretical church from the real church is this transmission of of authority. And you see that in the first century, second century, third century, fourth century, fifth century, sixth century, on and on and on up to the 21st yeah. century. You can trace that church back. You can trace each of these beliefs back, mm-hmm. um, you know, each century back until you get back to the first century. Or, or And or, uh, I wanted to add something real quick to what you said by yeah. um, pointing out the example of uh, throughout the Old Testament. There are a lot of um, examples of headship. 
such mm -hmm. as uh, Moses being the head of the people or Noah, for example. So we can see this throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament of certain people being put in positions of authority over other, uh, other, uh, you know, everyone else. And so it's not really surprising, you know, when we can see the same kind of authority being given to Peter. Of course, it's not, it's not as explicit as some people would like it to be, you know, the authority that we believe Peter has or that Peter was given. Some people would want it to be a bit more explicit in, or, in order for them to believe it. Um, but that would require you to adhere to some kind of principle of solar, uh, solar uh, scriptura, mm -hmm. which would uh, make it um, necessary to find some kind of explicit, uh, explicit, uh, explicit example of, you know, some kind of belief in the Bible where you'd have to find something that's obvious or else it's not true. Um, but anyway, so we, we can see examples of that kind of thing throughout the uh, Old Testament as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed in the new testament the old testament is revealed god works through typology and jesus himself says the the bronze serpent raised up in the desert is a, is a type of christ we talked earlier about the woman in genesis three sixteen being foreshadowed uh of mary and jesus uh, mary and her seed the woman and her seed um god works through divine poetry he he makes scripture rhyme i do think that's a it's an anecdotal proof of the the divine authority of at least some of the scriptures you can actually like, there's no way you get a conspiracy of men over thousands of years to write a document that subtly rhymes in so many unique, unique ways. Like I, you know, it's not like a definitive proof of the, the Quran tries to use, you know, could, could a man write as good as this is written as one of the, the constant refrains mm -hmm. of the Quran uh, rather than appealing to the, 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 the miracles of Muhammad because he couldn't perform any miracles purportedly. But then later on, uh, the Quran is is full of all sorts of examples of Mo of Muhammad not being able to do um, miracles. But then the um, oh, what is it called? Uh, I'm totally blanking on the name right now. But it's the it's the, the it's not the Quran, but it's the thing that the Muslims also take as, as authority of. It's the 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 writings of Muhammad in his life, the Sadith. Uh, Anyway, whatever it is. Uh, and then they're like, oh, no, one time he made water shoot out of his fingers or something like that. And so they, they kind of like write uh, weird miracles back into it. So there's actually a contradiction even within their scriptures. Uh, but within the pages of sacred scripture, you see this beautiful, subtle rhyme scheme. You see all of these, these themes visited and revisited and revisited and revisited. One of the themes that you see all over the old Testament is the idea uh, on a, on a, on a tangential note here of faith first followed by obedience leading to blessing. And that is the model of the new Testament too. In fact, John, John three uh, 16 is that famous passage. God's who love the world that he sent his only son that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. Well, it's clarified 20 verses later in John three 36, when, uh, it, it, it's it's said that whoever believes in the son has eternal life whoever disobeys the son uh mm. will will not right and so belief is contrasted not with disbelief but with disobedience and that actually that actually lines up perfectly with what james says he says you know mm. so you believe that god is one good for you the, the the demons do the same thing and they shudder right um mm. rather faith without works is dead and so uh the model of the old testament all throughout the old testament is faith first followed by works leading to blessing. If you, if, 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 if Moses uh, had faith in God, but didn't go to, to Pharaoh, if Israel had faith in God, but, but didn't leave Egypt, if, mm. if Abraham had faith in God, but, but didn't leave Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, you know, there's all of these examples where if they, if, if Noah had faith, but didn't build the boat, <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, he wouldn't have received the blessing. 
And that is the model in the Old Testament, and it's the model in the New Testament. And that's why anybody who teaches, in my opinion, sola fide in the sense that works simply don't play a part at all is missing so much of the truth. But they're missing the, the, the very concept that Paul goes over over and over again of our participation in the body of Christ. It's no longer me living, but Christ who lives in me. It's not that our works are our works, it's that our works are Christ's works. But if your works aren't working, <laughs> then Christ isn't actually in you. Um, yeah. And so you can actually find some agreement um, with people who will who will say sola fide, but then they're like, well, you know, they, they often will say, well, what we really mean is, um, you know, the, the works show that you have living faith. And that's mm-hmm. true to one extent, because if you're, if you're doing the works, it means you're, you're submitting in sure. humble submission to, to the Holy spirit to be sure. So they are proof that the, that the faith is alive, but they're not just proof. They are required as well. And you're free to do them or to not do them. You are free to resist the Holy spirit. Um, I know and a lot see, of our, uh, Calvinist Perfect. brothers uh, find that that abhorrent, but it's hmm. it's not abhorrent if God Himself designs the situation that way, and He does. And if He commanded us to do certain things, as we can see in I think it's Matthew twenty-five in the Last Judgment scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think both of us have spoken on this uh, in the past. Um, yeah. Um, so and we can Matthew see seven. that they, they yeah. both use a similar imagery: the the sheep and the goats, and yeah, we see example. We that. see another example of that in uh, James two, where. Um, if you say to your brother, you know, be warm and filled, it doesn't really mean anything unless you do something about it, right? Yeah. And uh, your faith is practically dead unless you do those things. And so it's not that those things are necessary for you to be saved, but it's really just it's really just required. If you have a living faith, it's required that you do those things. I mean, we see, like I said, we see an example of that in Matthew 25. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, here's something I would say to that, too, is... A lot of times when people say, are you saved? They're thinking of salvation in the terms of like divine fire insurance, right? I don't want to go to the bad place. I'm saved, right? But what is salvation? Why are we saved? What is it all about in the first place? We are saved to be conformed to the image of Christ. And if we're not being conformed to the image of Christ, we're not being saved, whether we think we are uh, or not. That's why that's why St. Paul says in in that famous uh, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love is patient, love is kind, etc. He says, if I have all faith, all faith, so as to move mountains, uh, but I don't have love, I'm, I'm a crashing symbol. So something beyond faith is necessary. And Paul and James are in agreement on this, right? You need to have love. Even the demons have faith because, because faith by itself is mere mental ascent. It's, it's acknowledgement of a truth, but you can acknowledge the truth and not live the truth. Right. And, and, mm. and that's, that's, that's a key part of the gospel message. I think a lot of our brothers and sisters are, are, are sadly missing, um, possibly through through no or little fault of their own but uh you know that's an important part of the gospel that's that's not yeah. being taught by a lot of our brothers and sisters hmm. yeah and a lot of um a lot of protestants seem to be upset with the idea that we would have to do any kind of work in order to maintain our relationship with god even though that's really the way that most human relationships work is you really you have a friendship with someone right or you have a relationship what you do really says a lot about how you actually care about the other person. I mean, if you, if you really do love the other person, you're going to just, you're, you know, you're going to do something for them. Mm-hmm. And it really shows that you actually are in a relationship with the other person because you actually care and you're actually doing something, you know, you're doing what they ask you to do and all that kind of stuff. So really I would, I would like to, you know, show that it's not really that we believe that works save us obviously, but it's really things that we do out of love for God. And these things are, actually asked of us many times we're asked to do many things jesus commands us to do many things 
and not just in Matthew 25, but, um, you know, there's the example of Mark 16, which where he says, you know, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And never, he, he says, uh, of course, in John 6, you know, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he commands us to do certain things. He can understand those passages in different ways, of course, but he can't deny the fact that we are commanded to, commanded to do certain things. And um, that would be one thing to point out to people who seem to be almost um, upset by the idea that works have anything to do with our relationship with God or salvation at all. Yeah, no, 100%. And again, salvation isn't just fire insurance. Salvation is being conformed into Christ. And in a sense, our only freedom, in a a real sense, our only works are the works that we do selfishly that are that are wicked, because anytime we do good, any good you do at all is is participation with grace, right? So all of your good works are Christ working in you. And if you're going to say that those count for nothing, then you're going to say that Christ's works count for nothing. And no, mm. nobody wants to say that, right? Because you, you shouldn't say that because Christ's works most certainly count for something, right? So every yep. good work you do is Christ working in you. The only thing you really do on your own is you reject, right? You you say no, like Adam in the garden, right? Turning away from God in, in pride and, and saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'll do it my way, you know, yep. Fra- Frank Sinatra style, right? Um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, that's, that's the thing, right. And we do have that freedom to say no. Right. And, and that is definitely something Mm -hmm. that scripture is very clear about. There's passage after passage. I know that your, your friend, John and I, I think have gone back and forth a couple of times about scripture and whether or not salvation Mm -hmm. could be lost. This is another doctrine that I think is, is key to know, because if, if you go around with a false sense of security, you may wind up, uh, not in the state of holiness that you should be, um, if you're aware that you have to continue to work, you have to abide, you have to strive, you have to grow and bear fruit. That's going to change how serious you, you take uh, your Mm. walk with Christ. Yeah. Especially when you understand that there are consequences for not only when you do certain things you shouldn't do, but when you don't do things you should do, right. Sins of omission. When you know that there are some kinds of consequences for those actions or lack of actions, then you know that you have to do these things. And if you believe that, well, no matter what I do, because I professed faith in Jesus, I can go to heaven, right? So mm-hmm. that's not much of an inspiration to, or motivation to help you live a life of holiness if you don't really have to, right? If it's not really required yeah. of you to deny yourself, right? The, the Bible says you need to you know, pick up your cross every day and deny yourself. And that wouldn't really be necessary if you didn't have to really do anything about your about your faith life. You know, if you, if you didn't really have to do anything about your relationship with Jesus and you could just you know, sign the dotted line and say, you know, I believe and all that. And now I'm just going to sit back and wait till I die and go to heaven. You know, it's, yeah. it's not that easy. It's not that Well, and at the end of the day, it's a, it's honestly, it's a form of Gnosticism. Uh, yeah. I've, I've become convinced because it really is the belief that if you know the secret knowledge and the secret knowledge is the name of Jesus and that he died for your sins. If you know that you're into heaven, no matter what. Um, but if you don't know that knowledge, you're screwed no matter what. Right. Mm-hmm. And that bespeaks a, a terrible misunderstanding of what scripture says. Um, and also the justice and love and mercy of God, uh, who is mm-hmm. so just and so mercy that Jesus, uh, after dying, uh, descends, excuse me, into uh, Sheol and mm-hmm. he goes to, to preach the gospel to the spirits who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So all of those people that got washed off the, the face of the earth. Uh, and I'm sure that that's a synecdoche that, you know, means all of the unjust people probably, but he goes and he presents the gospel to those people. So yep. I don't, I don't ever want to teach or presume that anybody can get a, get out of jail free card or that you get a second chance when you die or anything like that. But mm-hmm. salvation is in God's hands and yep. he is just and merciful and he wills the salvation of all. 
Paul says that explicitly in multiple places, uh, especially to Timothy, one Timothy three, four, something like that. I'm, I'm Catholic. I don't know my scripture verses, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, he says God wills the salvation of all. Now, anything God wills being omnipotent should come to pass if it's something that his will alone affects. Mm -hmm. But if it is the case that our will is a part of that process, then it makes sense that anytime we're saved, it's still 100% on God. And anytime yep. we're lost, it's 100% on us. Um, yep. Whereas if you make these these other claims, uh, you make it so that our, our salvation and our damnation are entirely upon God. We kind of yep. got into this discussion um, with John and Steve the other night. Uh, it was about two or three weeks back at this point. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the points I kind of want to drive home is, you know, I understand. I understand the logical rigor of uh, the the Calvinistic Presbyterian sort of a, a, a approach. I don't know exactly how they 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 label themselves. And obviously, I know there's a lot of nuances. So I don't want to sound like I, I don't sure. want to pigeonhole them or, or sound like I can you know say I understand everything about your faith because I don't. I'm sure that they can teach me a lot of great things. Um, but the problem I see with that is is it makes God into a capricious God, and it makes us whether you want to admit it or not, it makes us into puppets. Because if you can't control your salvation at all, then everything is purely descriptive and not normative. Everything is just, Oh, by the way, some people will be saved. Some people won't. Right. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just like, um, uh, a warehouse full of mannequins and some of those mannequins wind up in a store display and they've got clothes on and that's what a mannequin is for. And so those are happy mannequins and some of the mannequins wind up in the dumpster fire out back. And those are the sad mannequins. And did the mannequin do anything? No, just some of them wind up in storefront windows and you know, some are on mm -hmm. Saks Fifth Avenue, some are in a local Walmart and some are in the dumpster fire. And you know, it's just how it is, man. The the God, you know, me as the mannequin owner, I, I don't owe those mannequins anything. They're just mannequins, man. I can put them wherever they want. But we're not mannequins, right? We are designed by a God who is love itself, who desired to create us, not because he needed us or because he gained anything by it, but because he is love. And what love does is it gives freely of itself for the sake of another. Um, and God wills the salvation of all of us. He wants no one to perish, but he wants everyone to have eternal life. That doesn't mean everyone will, yep. but he wants it. He wills it and he makes it possible. Doesn't mean it's going to happen because salvation is a two way street, uh, but he makes it possible. And there are many examples of God reaching out to people in the Bible, but people say no, right? There is mm -hmm. one example of when Jesus approached, I forget exactly where it was and when it happened, but I, I think I have it in my notes uh, somewhere. Where Jesus said, you know, he was willing to gather up the children of Jerusalem under his wing, but they were unwilling. You know, mm -hmm. I forget exactly what passage uh, passage that well, was. Well, Matthew Matthew nine is similar to that because he see, he looks around, he sees the people of Israel, and he says the the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Therefore, you know, call the master of the house and have him send out new new laborers. And then he calls his apostles first, Simon called Peter, and then Andrew and James, and et cetera, et cetera. So mm -hmm. similar to what you're talking about, at least, is that passage. Oh, here it is. Okay, so I found it. Um, it is Matthew 23, verses okay. 37 through 39, and okay. it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent us uh, and stone those sent to you. How many times I yearned to gather your children together as a hen gathers her young under That's her right. wings, but you were unwilling. So it's possible and we have biblical examples. It's possible for God to will something. But still, it doesn't come to pass because our will, our will is involved in that process. And God is so powerful 
that he can include our will, our free decisions in that process of his providence. Absolutely. And still have Absolutely. to be accomplished because he can set up certain events that he knows that we will that we will respond to in a particular way, but that is part of his plan because he knows uh, the events that we that we will be placed into, right? Yes. Um, now that doesn't mean that we can't choose anything other than what God has, you know, set for us, right? See, to say that we can only choose one thing, or that God knows that we will only do one thing, and so therefore we can only do that thing, right? That's assuming that we only have one choice, and there, and that there are no other choices that we could make, right? Right. For example, when Adam sinned initially, um, he had two choices. He could have said either yes or no. Mm -hmm. But I've heard it said that, well, God knew that he would sin, and so therefore he couldn't have not sinned. You know, it was that kind of argument. But that assumes that he didn't have any other choice to not sin, right? That, right. that assumes that he could only have sinned, and so therefore he doesn't really have any free will at all. I mean, you can say, well, he had free will, but it wasn't really free. Well, then why yeah. do you even include the word free in there? You could just say yeah. well, he was able to do this, but he, he didn't, right? So yeah. you can't really even include the word free in any of that, right? You can You can just say that, well... God made it possible for Adam to sin, therefore he sinned because, well, that's just what God wanted, right? Yeah. That's that's like that's like saying, well, God wanted Adam to sin, and so he made it so that he only could sin, right? That's not that doesn't really reflect too well on God, right? If we didn't even have a choice in the matter, and then here, here's here's where it seems unfair to me. Let me go off on a quick tangent. So, what happens is God made it possible for Adam to sin, and according to some Calvinists, or what I understand, I may not be understanding this correctly, Adam could have only sinned. He couldn't have decided not to sin, right? Because he didn't really have free will in that area. Mm -hmm. um, and so because of that, we took on the consequences of that sin. And so because we are dead in sin, because of what Adam did, which couldn't really be his fault because he couldn't have done anything else, um, because of that, we are now in trouble. And now because we're dead in sin, because, what, because of what Adam did, now we go to hell, right? So it's like I, I don't that that seems very unfair to me. To mm -hmm. I mean, if, I don't know if that's a correct under, uh, a correct interpretation of what Calvinists believe. Maybe I'm not, you know, framing it correctly. Um, but that that just seems unfair to me to assume that Adam couldn't have decided not to sin, and so because of that, um, because God knew that he would, because God only knew that he would sin, and he couldn't really decide not to. You know, we suffer the consequences of something that. You know, right. really fall, you know, the one thing I would say about all of this is Adam is a unique situation. And Definitely. so what applies to everything else is not going to apply in the same way to the man who was created without original sin. He yeah. is a unique being. And I, I will say this as well. I do think sometimes God forces certain things. St. Paul says in his writings that, you know, God willed that that all would fall, that he might have mercy on all. Right. Uh, and so God sets up a situation where he can be loving and compassionate. Right. So it's yeah. possible that God intentionally created a situation such that Adam would fall, in which case Adam's actual fall wasn't entirely his fault. I mean, it, it still was in a sense, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm reminded of the the exultet that we sing every every Easter vigil. Uh, Saturday night, you know, it's like 10 p.m. at night in the, the church and it's dark and it's just candlelit. And then the, the voice sings out. And one of the lines is, oh, oh, necessary sin of Adam that that mm. earned for us so great a redeemer or something along those lines. I don't remember mm. the translation from the Latin, but, um, you know, even the even the church itself in the Exaltet sees the sin of Adam, at least in some sense, as necessary. And 
us as temporary finite beings in time, there are some things like the Trinity itself that are mysteries that are things we're never going to be able to plumb the depths of. And I'm as a Catholic, very comfortable with that concept. You know, a, a mystery doesn't mean something we don't know anything about, but it means something we can never fully fathom or fully plumb. You know, we don't have an infinite intellect. Uh, unlike unlike some people, uh, you know, we, we don't have an infinite intellect. We don't know all things that could be known, all possibilities that could be known. Uh, but he does. And so obviously he's going to be doing certain kinds of calculation that, that we simply don't have the ability to do. And of course, being outside of time, uh, fully outside of time and even outside of, you know, reality, <laughs> he's fully aware of what happens, what could happen, what may happen, what won't happen, et cetera, uh, from all possibilities. So I, I'm still a firm believer in Providence and that God set up a situation where um, the vast majority of people, the, the, the largest number of people or, or something along those lines are, are able to be saved. And I also think that just like a, um, I have a, I have a little puppet, little lion puppet that I you know, play with my kids. My, my young, my, my oldest, when she was a kid, couldn't say puppets. She called it lion pockets. We call them little, little lion pocket. Lion pocket does all sorts of funny stuff, right? Um, he does things that are honorary sometimes, but he's not free. He's a puppet. And so anytime he does something that's honorary, it's my fault. It's not Lion Pocket's fault. And so I can't fault Lion Pocket for things that aren't his fault. So it's very possible. It, it, I'm not saying it's the case, but it's at least possible that certain things are set up such that they couldn't be otherwise. But even if that's the case, if it couldn't be otherwise, then you don't have a choice. And if you really don't have a choice, if you truly don't have a choice, uh, then you are at least less culpable. Right. You, yep. you are not to blame. Now, you could have put yourself in a situation where you wind up with no choice, but getting there could have been your choice. I mean, there's so yep. many, so many different fathom, so many different possibilities that it's, it's hard to fathom or, or plumb the depths. Yep. Again, I did my undergraduate and my graduate thesis in free will, and I still don't know a thing about yep. free will because uh, it's such a crazy topic. Um, yep. But it's just one of those things. So, so, you know, in those situations, a God who is just a God who is love. Uh, a God who wills the salvation of all, a God who set up the world in such a way that he can have mercy on all because that's what he wills because being love, he wants to show the most amount of love possible. And, you know, showing love to someone who doesn't need your forgiveness is is less love than showing love to someone who does need your forgiveness. Um, you know, all of these different things kind of converge in a way that, that we can come up with really neat stratagems, really neat, like... Um, puzzle pieces and and flannel grams <laughs> felt designs whatever you want to do to, to try and understand god's mindset but at the end of the day those are the type of things we can't fathom like we just can't where were you when i created the foundations of the world he says to job right and so it's it's this is one of those situations where we need to at least be okay with a little bit of wonder because God made the world in such a way that wonder is innate. Uh, whenever uh, a husband and a wife find out they're pregnant, you know, nowadays, not so much, but you had nine months of wonder, right? What is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like looking at a Christmas present for nine months and going, or eight, yeah. eight and a half months, whatever, you know, however long it takes you to figure out you're pregnant. Uh, you know, what's it going to be? Little boy, little girl? You know, what do we know? You, 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 don't, you don't know. Obviously, now in the days of sonograms, you can find out. But but yeah. for most of human history, most human beings uh, did not know what they were having. Um, and so there's lots of little things that were, were certain bits of wonder and it makes for cool speculation, right? You know, could yeah. Jesus, would he have been the, the best tennis player ever because he was the perfect man and hadn't fallen or, you know, <laughs> you know all sorts of things, you know, would he have counted as the best tennis player ever if he cheated because he did miracles <laughs> Are miracles, not cheating if you're perfect and, and you're fully God and we're all, you know, uh, on the path to divination, God became man so that man might become God. We might be partakers in the divine nature, as St. Paul says. So, you know, in in heaven will we all be miraculous tennis players you know some, there's a lot of silly questions one can can 
chase down. But a lot of times they're less fruitful than we imagine. I think the, the more fruitful questions are the questions that have immediate import in our lives. Am I free? Should I pursue the good? Should I seek to separate myself from sin? Uh, should I be humble? Should I be contrite? Should I confess my sins, etc.? And those are the things uh, I think that are the, the the most important things. Those are the things that are inside the purview of the of the church at large, as well as the the Catholic Church in particular. Those are the things that we as as Christians on this journey are supposed to be uh, pursuing. I think, and uh, there's a lot of things that distract us, unfortunately. But I think that's the most important stuff. You know, following Christ. F following that's a verb, and it's not belief, right? Mm -hmm. Follow. Christ. Um, and it's a tough thing to do. And in fact, it's an impossible thing to do, but with God, all things are possible and, yep. uh, it's not us doing it. It's, it's the grace of God and the Holy spirit living inside of us. So, you know, and in, in all of this, it's very important to remember the verse that says it is no longer I who live and Christ who lives in me, especially as a Christian, when we say that we need to do these certain things or we need to perform certain works, we need to remember that when you are valid, validly baptized, uh, you become uh, you become like Christ. And it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And so I think that's a very, yeah. very important thing to remember uh, as we discuss these things and as we, you know, as we look at these things and as we think about these things, that we should think with the mind of Christ. We should speak with, we should speak like Christ. We should, you know, we should love like Christ because Amen. we are, you know, we are made like him. And uh, that's another topic that I wanted to talk about was um, baptism, but I, I think we're probably reaching the end of the time here. I was going to. I think we're hitting about one o'clock your time. It's about midnight my time. So, <laughs> yeah, we should probably I mean, wrap so it up for tonight. I mean, I mean, the complexity the complexity of all these things makes it all the more interesting. You know, it's it's fun to ask questions and you know wonder about all this stuff and think about it, and it's it's you know it's good. So uh, that's something we could talk about maybe next time. Uh, I know that we do have a discussion coming up i think it's going to be this saturday i set it up for the group um this saturday anyone can join i think or we can just make it between um you and myself and john and steve if that's if that's a thing um okay so i don't know if i have that on my calendar yet we have a lot of things going on so i send me after this send me the details on that and we'll try sure. to make sure that that actually sure, yeah. happens uh, <laughs> yeah so we can i mean eventually we can make that or we can we could talk about baptism next thursday um something like that um, so yeah, uh, thank you so much for um, for coming along, and this has been really awesome. Uh, there's just so much, like I said, there's so much to talk about. There's so many different ways to interpret all these things, and um, you know, this is why I made the group was so that I can have a better understanding of all these things. I, I don't want to presume to know um, what other people believe. You know, it's why I made the group um, so I can better understand it, and I can have a better understanding of my own uh, what I believe. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah, so this has been awesome, and. Uh, so I thank you for your time and all that. And this has just been awesome. Our first uh, first ever live stream. And uh, so we're going to have these hopefully every uh, every Thursday. Um, going to be Theology Thursdays. And um, so, yeah, that's going to be probably later on at night, like tonight, uh, around 10 o'clock your time. It's going to be 11 for me. I'm a bit 10 o'clock Central, so. 11 o'clock Eastern will hopefully become our new normal. And if you guys are yeah. watching, if anyone's watching this and you want to get on, and you want to uh, you want to be on here with us? We're happy to have people on. This yeah. is not it's not a debate show. Uh, this is you know for us to talk and yeah. come let us reason together, right? Um, yeah. We want to know what you think. We want to share what we think, and uh, you know hopefully we'll both grow in holiness and grow more Christ-like, or all yeah. of us will grow uh, simply by being good Christian brothers together and sisters. Yes. All right. So um, so yeah, this has been 
very interesting and um definitely gonna continue this uh later so yeah um i guess that's that (laughs) so all right well have a good night facebook land and everyone else who's out there and uh as always matthew it's good talking with you and i will see you when i see you see you in the groups (laughs) all right see you later thank you god bless god bless bye-bye